This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company I've used personally for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount. Before I get to that, I want to highlight a couple of products. So footwear has been a big issue, and we all know that these heavy-duty work boots cause a lot of issues with joint health and fatigue. Listening to the responders in the field, the military in the field, 5.11 have reverse engineered and created some incredible footwear that is much more lightweight, just as durable, and minimizes both fatigue and damage to the joints. One of those is the Norris sneaker. I have a pair of those myself. They are incredible. And the other one is the AT trainer that has the Atlas system, which spreads the weight of the load over the entire foot, thus reducing fatigue and long-term damage. Aside from footwear, they have the backpacks. I have the AMP pack myself. They're civilian clothes, the jeans, the shorts. I absolutely live in these days. The flashlights are some of the brightest I've seen, and they last an incredibly long time on one charge. The list goes on and on. Now, because 5.11 cares about you, the tactical population, they are offering you a discount of 15% on every purchase that you make. So go to 5.11 Tactical, use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, and save 15% every time you shop. And if you want to learn even more about the company, listen to episode 338 with co-founder and CEO, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by GovX. And as you know, I only have companies on here that I truly use and believe in myself. And GovX is a complete no-brainer. If you are a member of fire, police, EMS, corrections, military, and even hospital setting doctors and nurses, you qualify for the free membership to GovX, which marries us with discounts from so many companies that you probably already use. And on top of that, it's not just for active duty, but also retirees, veterans, and volunteers. So for our professions, having to purchase so much of our equipment, every single dollar counts. And understanding that, GovX has reached out to you, the Behind the Shield podcast audience, to offer you an additional saving. On your first purchase of $50 or more, if you use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, they will give you an additional $15 off your first purchase. And another layer of GovX is GovX Gives Back. Every month, they're going to sell a different patch, and the proceeds from that patch goes to a charity that supports either first responders or military. So as I mentioned before, go to GovX.com, G-O-V-X.com, register for your free membership, and save every single time you purchase. Welcome to episode 393 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute pleasure to welcome back on the show Jason and Iris Gardner. Now, Jason was my guest on the show on his own, and then Iris joined him on their second conversation. And since then, they have moved to rural Washington State, and during this year have been pretty much self-sufficient on their ranch. So there were so many lessons learned, such a great conversation regarding how they have seen 2020, not only with the pandemic, but also how they've raised their kids, how they've been able to feed them with foraging and some of the holistic methods that they've found. So a really, really powerful conversation that I think is very pertinent, especially coming from a family that prior to that was a special operations family and also living in San Diego. So before we get to that conversation, as I say, every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly elevates this podcast, making it more and more visible for others to find. 
And this is a free library for you, the audience, whether individually, whether organizationally. So all I ask in return is that you just pay it forward so we can get these incredible men and women stories to every single person on planet Earth that needs to hear them. So with that being said, I welcome back Jason and Iris Gardner. Enjoy. Jason and Iris, thank you so much again for the third time now coming back on the Behind the Shield podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. Beautiful. So where again are we finding you guys today on planet Earth? Northeastern Washington. Brilliant. All right. So I guess the the, the very first thing, just as an icebreaker, because we're not going to go through the chronological route on this one, we've, you know, we've heard... You know, both of your powerful stories in previous episodes, anyone listening, I highly recommend that you listen to those. But I thought a good icebreaker would be Halloween, because I was about to ask you, um, well, you know, write down a question about the kids, seeing the post, seeing, you know, where you're living now. It seemed like it was a little isolated from the outside looking in, but then I saw your Halloween post with the trick-or-treating, and I was like, okay, no, there's, there's lots of kids around. So let's start with that. What was Halloween like for the gardeners this year? So we've been talking about it for a few years now of doing like a haunted canyon walk or haunted forest walk or something. And um, because everyone was a little unsure what to do with Halloween this year, we decided this was the perfect year to do it. So on our property, we have um, a couple of really cool canyons and we decorated them and ha- had all the local kids, which even though we're kind of out in the middle of nowhere, we have a surprising amount of younger kids in our nearby area. Yeah, in our community. And a really good little community that comes together for things. So we ended up with um, over 30 kids doing this great outdoor haunted canyon walk which um was just fantastic for halloween yeah so it we had 11 stations kind of zigzagged through this forested canyon which is which is inherently kind of spooky after dark and uh probably like 15 bonfires 15 bonfires and bonfires burning at each station and then an adult who was in a costume um you know didn't have a huge budget for decorating it, but that uh, stretchy web is inexpensive, and yeah, all kinds found of some glowing lights and glowing cool lights stuff. Glowing lights and stuff. It was really magical, and it it wound up being really, really, really cool. And we had an amazing time, and it was just a a great event, you know, to get get everybody together. And we're outside, so it's from from a standpoint of the virus, it's it's safe and everyone's spread out and uh yeah it it was fantastic it's something that definitely we're going to do again and again and again yeah well it looked amazing and for anyone listening again if you follow the uh you you guys on instagram you'll see that but it also struck me right with the the scary element i used to live on a farm and it was a half a mile long tree densely treed um driveway that i had to walk up 
And that without any Halloween decorations was terrifying. <laughs> so yeah. I can relate. To make it not too scary because there's a lot of young kids. So I was trying to make it a bit more enchanted and not just terrifying for the young ones. And there was still, the, everybody liked it, you know, and we mm-hmm. wound up carving, I think, 22 pumpkins total. And yeah, lots of jack o' lanterns out there. All spread out. It, it was cool. I mean, for for me anyway personally it's it's christmas thanksgiving and then halloween is is you know that's how it stacks out for favorite holidays so i, I really enjoy it no, it was so good to see. I actually had um, kind of weird dynamic. I mean, I was going to do it regardless because, you know, I think that, you know, the the social element is as important as acknowledging, you know, the virus that's around at the moment. Um, but my little boy was with his mother. My wife was working. My stepson was working. So I was home alone. And there was a little part of the Grinch that got in me. I was like, ah, I'm just not going to do it because I know a lot of houses weren't this year. Um, and I certainly wasn't going to invent a cardboard tube to fling kids <laughs> candy at kids like some of these. Like it, it, it's not that virulent. We're not talking about you know Ebola, but um, but so I ended up doing it, and it was great. And and you know it was one of the few houses where these kids could come. You know, and I have this little zombie that spits out um, you know the the smoke machine smoke and this creepy doll, and 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 we had a quarter of the kids. But I think that that's just it. You have to be part of the the positive movement you have to be the ones that that choose to be the change and, and do something positive rather than just kind of you know buying into this 2020 sucks mentality that we hear well for us i mean i saw it as a great opportunity to adapt and make things even better than what we normally do you know instead of doing it the same old way it's always done let's think outside the box a little bit let's make it something that feels safe for everyone and is still a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. That's where we have this, you know, kind of an incredible opportunity now, despite all the the inconvenience that we find ourselves in. It's a fantastic opportunity to actually rethink how things are being done and come up with innovative new ways of doing things. Yeah, Jason, are you going to add to that? Yeah, I I feel like that any, any pressure that you put on our system and us as people is just going to make us better. And so there, there are lots of examples where, you know, the supply chain has been interrupted. So people are looking at how they can bring manufacturing back to the United States. And, uh, the, the one thing that, that a point that you may alluded to earlier was that our sense of community and interacting with other human beings is, is extremely, important and some people have pulled too far back from that and if they really do an honest risk analysis the risk of for for a lot of people being socially isolated is higher than the risk from the virus and there's ways that people can still and unfortunately there's people out there that have just isolated themselves to to a point where it's it's not necessary and it's just yeah. not good for them as people yeah, or us very as a community. <clears throat> unhealthy for people to do that too much. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I had an interesting discovery the other day and I'll, I'll share it with you. And for people listening out there, I urge you to, to do this. So, you know, when we, we talked, Jason and I, um, at the beginning of this, and, you know, I know you were getting a lot of intel that it was looking pretty horrendous what we were about to expect. Um, 
And, uh, you know, obviously now here we are eight, nine months later. And, and now, you know, we're able to see a pretty, a pretty consistent, um, you know, trend when it comes to each individual place. And that's one of the biggest problems. You know, you guys are out there in the beautiful countryside. There are people living in, you know, 400 square foot apartments in New York, very different diversity, very different, you know, density of population. Um, but I, I started Googling places because we're looking to go traveling, looking to go away for a few weeks in December. And I was trying to go home and, and I got nixed because they've kind of regressed in the UK, sadly. Um, and so what I notice is when, when you Google a state, it looks like there's a lot of spikes at the moment, but that's actually, um, cases. But there's another, there's another option to choose deaths. And when you press that, almost all of these is a complete inverse where we had the big spike at the beginning, but now it, it looks pretty, pretty amazing. So just to appease some of, like you said, the fear that's driving people deep into the recesses, actually look at deaths don't look at the cases because of course cases are higher you know we're testing this to get our kids back to school we're testing to go back to work we're testing to go into hospitals for surgeries and everything and i'm not downplaying you know the virus at all but just to take some of that fear i thought that was a very good tool like you can see okay there's more cases definitely that that part is right but actually the impact on on health people that are succumbing to it there's some great great news it's most places is actually so much better than it was a few months ago Oh, absolutely. And, you know, the medical professionals have a better idea on how to treat it now, apparently, from, you know, what I understand. They're, they're not putting people on ventilators as early. Yeah, the numbers that I would that I would like to see more so than positive cases is hospitalizations, you know, what that's looking like. Because even if you don't die from it, um, you know, if it's bad enough that you end up being hospitalized, that's that's not a, a light matter. So uh, I think that's an important number to look at. And we don't see many stats on that. No, that's a very good point. Two of my friends from, from my previous fire department um, were both hospitalized in the ICU. One was intubated for a bit. Luckily, he was uh, extubated and he actually ended up leaving before the other one. But they both were, you know, career firefighters, which is something that I talked about at the beginning, which is a more vulnerable population, the shift workers, the doctors, the nurses, the prison guards. Yeah. Um, but also both of them had some underlying stuff going on as well. So that, that exasperated it. But luckily, like you said, they didn't pass away, you know, which is incredible. But yes, was that an impact to their families, to their own health, to their mental health? Absolutely. So yeah, I think that's a good, that would be a good middle of the road metric to to really get a grasp of the impact of this. Yeah, that's what I feel like is that that gives you a much more sort of realistic view of what's going on than just looking at cases or looking at deaths either way. So, Absolutely. Well, for you guys specifically in Washington, what have you seen the last uh, eight or nine months? We're pretty I mean, we're really fortunate to live where we're at, that we are really spread out here and in a rural place. So it hasn't impacted our area in the way that it has in a denser populated area. I mean, people can still move about freely and, you know, recreate and have your kids outside. And, um, you know, schools were closed down for a while and all of that, but they're back pretty much back in some form or another now in school. And, um, we basically never quit getting together with our friends, it, but what we did do is we did it in smaller groups and we got together outside. 
Um, and then luckily too, because we are in, you know, a rural area, our place doesn't, um, the stores here don't get as many people rolling through them. So we didn't, there was a little bit of uh, time when there was no toilet paper on the shelves, but it wasn't long. So, uh, you know, I think it like the Walmart that we'll shop at it, it gets the same amount of people going through it in three days that a Walmart in a bigger city gets in an hour or a couple hours. So the turnover isn't as great. So it didn't affect us that much. And all the unrest as well. We're in a, a, a rural area and uh, that didn't have any effect on us either. Beautiful. Well, what about underlying health? When I think of people living you know, in communities like where you are now, I think of people that are outside all the time, whose water is probably going to be clean, who are living you know, much more off the land than the average person in the city. So you know, how would you compare the average you know, health in, in that kind of rural area you're in now versus, let's say, a densely populated uh, city in, in Florida, for example? I mean... We still have obese people and people who take in too much sugar and smoke and drink and stuff like that out here. You have we're we're in a with rural areas off often comes poor economically poorer areas and so um, you know there's not always the best diet choices and stuff out here but having people in close proximity to nature is always a really big benefit and it's a lot more likely that the kids are going to be outside in some way shape or another getting some exercise and fresh air and all of that so that's a that's definitely a benefit brilliant well with the uh, trick-or-treating um i know you know i've seen you guys for the last you know well over a year now foraging you know not even the stuff that you're growing just going out into the wild and picking you know berries and, and finding um you know food to eat for your christmas dinner and all these different things what were you offering for the uh, trick-or-treaters? Was there candy or were you kind of combining it with things that you found? Yeah, it, it was definitely candy. Yep. We're, uh, <laughs> we love, you know, eating healthy and being healthy and foraging and all of that. But we're also not opposed at all to just having some good old-fashioned Halloween fun where yeah. they could get to have candy and stuff on those occasions. So... Brilliant. Well, speaking of that, then, so when, you know, again, from from where you were watching this unfold, there there were food supplies that were diminishing. Um, Marmite, the, the British spread that most people can't stand from the UK. I couldn't get that for months and months. Um, <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> yeah, I know. It was it was almost life ending. <laughs> but, um, you know, we, we saw meat, we saw all kinds of things. Apparently, that was from, you know, a lot of the meat packaging processes from the industrial farming that we have. There's only about two or three that process the meat, so they got bottlenecked. Um, what were you seeing in again the, uh, the the densely populated areas that you were seeing, kind of through social media or the news, versus what you've been able to establish for yourself now? Well, I mean, as as you know, we far- we had a farm before we moved up here, and so it's r- a really important part of our life to raise our own food and. Um, if we can't raise our own food, then to try to get food locally as much as we can. And, um, so that's just, that's just how we default to always having a freezer full of wild game or local beef or something like that. And so 
when people started to panic over things not being on the shelf, it was sort of laughable to us because we could probably go for months without ever actually having to go to the grocery store or something if that were the case. Um, but I understand that not everybody has that those options. So it was sort of we were able to sit back and just watch it all play out without feeling much stress over it. I, you know, we did grab stuff like I, I thought hard about it and I was like, wow, we've got enough meat, but we're, we, we won't have enough salt. So we grabbed, you know, 10 pounds of salt and had that and a couple other things. Yeah. We always buy in bulk because we don't go to town that that often. So we're, we're pretty stocked up, but yeah, as things started to get really weird there for a while, we were like, okay, what, what would need, we need, if we need to go completely, um, on our own with our food, salt would be a big one to be able to, pro- to not process, um, cure meat, cure meat. And, and then, stuff, then that's so. just how I do steak. It's like some yeah. salt and black pepper, let it rest for a couple hours, throw that stuff on the grill. Boom. Beautiful. Yeah, I had a, a gentleman on who was from uh, what they call Agrihood in Asheville, North Carolina. And they basically built a community around a farm. And it was an organic farm as well. So they kind of saw the same things. Like, yes, they had to change the the way that they worked around each other in the farm, had to change the way they literally delivered the food to the members of the community. But when this was all going on, they had this constant source, not so much of protein, but you know, definitely of, of the, the vegetable side. And so when I hear a lot of the naysayers, when we talk about bringing farming back to, you know, local farming, trying to grow your own food, they always say, Oh, how are we going to feed everyone in, in LA or New York? And to me, you know, there's enough of land around the US where we can supply them as well. But, but through my eyes and please, you know, give me your version. It seems to me like returning farms back to the local area, having local produce, having local, you know, meat raised and, and, you know, rotated through pastures and, and raised holistically would 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 kind of move the needle on this country's health so much versus the way we're doing it at the moment where we're importing and moving food, you know, thousands of miles away, covering it in chemicals, irradiating it, and, you know, it finally arrives basically barely even in the same form that it was grown. Yeah, it, it, it's definitely, that's a, you know, there's the whole, there's the food and then there's the nutritional value, right? So you can have all the food in the world to feed people, but if it isn't nutritionally dense, it's not going to actually keep people nourished. Yeah. So yeah. In, in the small farms without the, the monocropping and stuff, you're able to have much more nutritionally dense food. And it really makes sense to be able to bring agriculture back, especially now through COVID where we see, you know, the, the slaughterhouses all shutting down and stuff and them just having to kill thousands of pigs and things because they weren't able to process them. I mean, what a horrible waste. And that's, that just showed another flaw in the system where that wouldn't have to happen if it was done on a more local scale. If, if you did it on a more local scale, they would give you the ability to decentralize your production of food, which then would make it realistic for you to run a farm the way Joel Salatin runs his farm and 
Jordan Green, and you would just have a whole bunch of those serving less people instead of these giant industrial farms that we have right now, where to make that work, they, you know, got to they got to spray a bunch of glyphosate and use a bunch of chemical fertilizer, and they can't really integrate at that scale, utilizing livestock with produce and rotating everything through. Um, and maybe they can, they just haven't done it well. But we know that the scale that, that Joel Salatin, for an example, that, that most people are familiar with, does it, could support it. And then you just, you would have all these different nodes of these small farms that because they're smaller, they don't have a requirement for a bunch of equipment and and everything else. And it, it, I think it's it would be a better model all the way around, and luckily I think that that's what we're moving to. Yeah, I think watching um, COVID was a big wake up call for a lot of people. I've seen my friends who are still farmers and stuff. I've definitely seen that they had a big uptick in their sales for CSA shares and stuff after that, where people were realizing that they may not be able to get their food off the grocery store shelf. And we're actually reaching out more to local farmers to try to see if they could get food from them. And, you know, that may also be a benefit to this whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one thing, and again, I don't know if you get a completely different message where you are, but what I've seen, I don't subscribe to, you know, television full stop. I have Netflix and everything, but what I've seen just through the, the overall message that's being given, um, even through the BBC, and I'm, I'm, you know, usually a big fan of them, but just, just the overall message about this is, has been very focused on the virus. And through my lens, it's not only ignoring underlying health conditions, and I'm not talking about the deaths, I'm talking about just the fact that we have a very sick nation, but actually it's almost suppressed, where if you were talking about, you know, comorbidities, you were basically a naysayer of the virus. And, and that's heartbreaking to me because before the virus happened, the period that we just had now, over half a million people die from smoking and obesity-related diseases alone. So um, what have you witnessed as far as, you know, through your lens, not, not, you know, not loading the question from your perspective, as far as this teaching us any lessons on improving our nation's health? Yeah, that's a dialogue that we've kind of been having for a while now and this just emphasized it uh, I, I believe and I think for a lot of other people it made them really sit down and think about it but like you said the the obesity problem in the US is is it's terrible and uh, I think ed people educating it, you know, you do a great job of this. There's a lot of other podcasts where people are, this is an open discussion that lots of people are having about, hey, how do we actually increase our quality of life by in increasing our health? And, and so people are having discussions about sleep, about reducing the amount of sugar that they take in, about what kind of diet they should consume and, and exercise, you know, and 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 there there are these other other pillars that fall in there too, and that that is like diet, exercise, sleep, and then some of the ones that that are getting talked about more now that we weren't really discussing before, but that are really important is a sense of gratitude, and finally social interaction. 
community. And and, and, and community falls under that. Yeah. But as human beings, we're we're social creatures and our overall health is anchored to you need all of those how, things to work together to how be how much we're interacting with each other fully healthy so how have you managed to do that because like i said it was surprising to me when you mentioned how many you know other families you had in your area and you did have a community and what i see sometimes in in the fire service is you know some of our men and women literally go and find a plot of land somewhere and they kind of tuck themselves away, which I totally get being away from the white noise, having worked in you know this profession for however many decades. But at the same time, you, you lose that tribe, you lose that human connection, that community. So it seems like now that, you know, seeing all the, you know, the, the, the families that were attending your, your Halloween celebration, that you're able to bring that community, even though, you know, uh, geographically, there might be a greater distance separating you. So how, how does that sense of community work in the more rural setting where you are? It works better than the, the, the setting where you're in a higher population density. I guarantee it. Well, people need each other more here. Like it's you actually kind of sometimes actually rely on your neighbors. You can't just call somebody to come fix whatever's broken in town because you can't get them out. But I think for us, the biggest thing is how we try to treat people. Um, we live in an interesting area where we have a really, you know, there's very strong political differences. There's very, you know, super redneck people and there's gun toting Trump loving Americans. And then there's total hippie commune dwelling, you know, Biden loving everything. And we don't, we don't, Jason and I don't divide between those people. We, see value in both ideals, you know, not, not in their ideals so much as we see value in the people themselves and are able to overlook some of the sort of what is often viewed as extreme this or extreme that. And there's value in those people. And if you reach out and you connect with them, um, all of a sudden you realize that you all have things in common and you can let go a lot of, of a lot of the stuff that is the big divide between us right now in this country and start to have real conversations. And the next thing you know, you're together at barbecues or you're doing events for the kids together and everybody's getting along and actually respecting each other. And that's community to me. I mean, that's community is when you really actually care about the people around you, not just about what their political beliefs or their religious beliefs or any of that is. And and that's not because of us, James. That's how it is up here. That's how the community is. And, and but it, it, it can take people bringing everybody together a little bit. And I think that's what we tend to do is we are like, hey, let's all get together and do this thing. And then everybody comes out of their holes in the woods and are happy to actually interact together. Uh, yeah. And but but I, I, I think that if we came up, if you and I didn't live here, everybody up here still gets along, even though politically they are separate and different. So it, we're really lucky that we live in 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 this community and i suspect in a lot of rural areas it's it's the same way because people know their first names they know everybody's family situations and uh um 
once once you understand that about somebody, then it's really difficult to generalize and make assumptions about someone and say someone's a bad person just because they don't they aren't lined up with you on a political scale. What what about the uh, you talk about community? What about the altruism element? I had a very interesting perspective. I posted that Oregon had just decriminalized. Um, I think it was heroin and I believe it was cocaine. Um, addiction and it still was to me a kind of piecemeal version of, of what we should be doing but regardless it was definitely a step in the right direction um it was just if they got caught with with a user's amount we're not talking about dealing we're not talking about smuggling and watching the comments it was very interesting it was originally posted i saw it on a on a police officer's site and he was being very snarky about it and, and very sarcastic and you know what a terrible idea it was so i was like well, why don't me even respond let me just post on my own page, um, you know, this same story, but through my lens. And here's, here's some episodes where I've had, you know, the, the guy in Portugal that, that spearheaded decriminalization. And let me, you know, put some positivity out there. But some of the comments, the only comments that were anti this were literally, oh, it's natural selection. Ad, you know, addicts deserve to die. They're pieces of shit. Da, da, da. And what I realized is that all the, the people that were opposed to it were a knee jerk, two-dimensional response to a quote-unquote addict being less than a person now obviously my initial response would be what about these navy seals and firefighters and police officers and you know sports stars that you admire and musicians that you listen to who are also addicts are they also pieces of shit you know and so that to me the the thing that was missing was that lack of community that lack of understanding that lack of commonality and instead, they had been dehumanized into a bum, an addict, a whore, you know, all these other phrases that people love to use. Um, so with that working, that community working where you are, do you see a, a more of that kind of altruistic looking out for each other, even though you have different backgrounds and different persuasions? Yes. We, we, we have people that have struggled with addiction in, in our community and people know who they you know they they know them and they know that they're like oh that's my neighbor and he's he's got this weakness and he's struggling with this but everyone's rooting for them to win no one wants to see him fail and you know in 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 most cases it works out for him in other cases it's just it's it's a lifelong struggle that that they go through but um there isn't like an people just would never, I think, think, oh, well, that person's just an addict. They're going to die and that's it. You know, they have a first name, they have a family and, uh, and you know, I, I, that's the difference. And I, I don't know where you get to the, to the level where the population density wise where people really start to care about each other in their communities and then where you get to it to where uh, you become uh, anonymous and then it's easy to make these generalizations about other people and and uh, and then that's when you start making those generalizations and using words like uh, addict or whore or Nazi or libtard, those things, those things are not helpful. And then, uh, um, you know, all kinds of bad stuff comes with it because it dehumanizes people. Anything to add on that one, um, Iris? 
Um, no, I mean, yeah, the, the the dehumanizing thing is a is a tough one. It's it's never good, and being able to have more community involvement. I mean, it's really easy when you don't actually know somebody who is a certain way to label them. And the more you're involved with other people and you see their weaknesses and realize that they're still good people at heart or they come from a good family or they're trying and they're, they're, they have struggles that you haven't had to deal with in your life. All of a sudden it's easier to take a step back and not be as judgmental about the situation that they find themselves in. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it, actually, with, with just the, the population density. Because what I see where I live, even though it's a suburban setting, there is a sense of community. I mean, it really is. Our kids play together and, you know, there's, uh, like I said, this Halloween thing that happened. The, the parents that did partake, I mean, we all usually get involved and... um yeah, there's there's social media for a good reason. There's like a little neighborhood watch, and you know people need help, or you know starting a cooking business, you know whatever it is. I saw a lot of a lot of community, a lot of kindness within that, um, and that's an interesting perspective. Like, how big does a community get where you cease to be, a, you know, viewed as a member of that, and and you become a kind of faceless statistic? Which sadly, I think, is why we see a lot of the the prejudice that we see at the moment. Uh, I, yeah, I agree. Right. Well, then, speaking of raising good humans, <laughs> um, tell me about, you know, the the continuing experience that you guys have had with um, Storm and Thor, because, I mean, obviously, that's a huge thing about what you post now. And, you know, you've both written some very powerful things about your parenting experience. So what has the, the year since we spoke last brought as far as some more parenting lessons that you've encountered? Hold on, let me look for it. Jason's just asking if I have a quote that we were just talking about yesterday. yesterday. We were just oh, yeah, talking I do. About this quote. I Let do. Her read this. This is one of my favorite things that I think um, applies to parenting. And it's a quote from the Secretary of Treasury, Ivy Baker Priest, who I'm not sure what era this is from, but it's it's older. Anyway, the quote is, my father had always said there are four things a child needs, plenty of love, nourishing food, regular sleep, and plenty of soap and water. After that, what he needs most is some intelligent neglect. Boom. And I think that sort of sums sums up for us, um, you know, lots of love, lots of good, healthy food trying to make sure they have regular sleep. And that includes like not letting your kids sit up on an iPad late at night or get up in the morning and start, you know, making sure they have a solid night's sleep um, and plenty of soap and water to wash off all the dirt that they get on them outside playing. And uh, the intelligent neglect is probably the most important, important part of the whole thing, I believe with, um, Giving the kids responsibility and freedom to make some mistakes and figure some things out on their own. And obviously not in a careless manner where you just completely neglect your children, but in a way where you're not a helicopter parent who's hovering over them, clearing the path in front of them. The What's, what's the other quote that you um, prepare, prepare your child for the path not the path for your child yeah 
No, I love that. I absolutely love that. And I think that's, that's not how I was raised. I mean, I was given all those things and then, you know, was basically given free range of a farm where I almost killed myself on numerous occasions. <laughs> but, you know, um, but that was it, you know, came back with, with cuts and gashes and, you know, hurt feelings sometimes, but yeah, you absolutely grow from it. And I'm, tr- it's hard to replicate that in a suburban setting. But again, where we are, it genuinely is when when the kids are out and sadly this this covid um you know thing that we've encountered has taken the wind out of a lot of these kids sales that were out playing all the time now they got accustomed to being inside playing on their devices which is frustrating for my son because he'll come back 30 minutes later like yeah they got tired they've gone home but when we return to you know normal again which i hope will be a, a better version of before um you know, he, he literally would be out until the streetlights came on. And so, you know, I, I do my best to prepare him, give him some tools to succeed. But then at the same time, when he's out there, he's out there. He's dealing with, you know, whatever, you know, whether it's falling off his bike, whether it's, you know, someone picking on him. And as long as he's not like attacked, you know, he, that's, that's something that he kind of is out there to, to figure out for himself. Yeah. It's really important to have some of those obstacles come up that they have to deal with on their own. That gives them, you know, there's nothing that gives you more confidence in yourself than figuring out some problems that arise in your life and sorting them out on your own. And there's a lot of kids, I think, that don't have much confidence these days. So that's a huge one in mental health, um, particularly. So in, in our selection course for the SEAL teams, um, we've been selecting or the, the Navy's been selecting people that are in better and better shape, right? And so hoping that the attrition rate would go down in the selection course, which is, is historically, if, if you look at people making it to, to basic underwater demolition SEAL training, is about 70%. It's, it's greater if you go all the way to everyone that raises their hand and says they want to try it. And they haven't got that 70% rate down because one of the reasons is is that that people will drop out during training or quit is because they're not familiar with failing or they don't have good resiliency and if you're not allowing your children to to fail and and we all know that we learn the most when we do fail but that that we get you know amazing athletes that they're they're could do anything that they throw at them in um, uh, the the training, but they've never failed before. And the first time that they fail, they're done. They just, they're mentally over and they quit. Yeah. Well, I've had that with my son because he's always been very small. He's basically a carbon copy of me when I was his age. So I had my growth spurt when I was 18. I'm not exactly a big dude now, but so he is the smallest kid. He's one of the youngest kids in his year. Um, academically, he was behind, you know, physically he's been behind. And, you know, it, I can see how it demoralizes him sometimes. But, um, you know, the lesson I try and keep repeating with him is understand that if you push through and you achieve, even though you might be smaller or, you know, you might not seem like you're as academically, um, you know, intelligent as some of your classmates, your fight is what's going to carry you through life. And, you know, mm. I think that's that's just it is it sucks. It sucks watching a kid that's done jujitsu for four years get tapped out over and over and over and over again. But the thing is that that fight in the dog is there already. But when he when his body catches up with him, 
then, you know, like just as you said, whatever he applies his mind to, whatever his burning desire is, he's going to have that fight to chase what it is and, and take, you know, adversity on the chin by that point. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Well, then kind of staying on the parenting a little bit, you know, I, I see that you've been um, teaching the kids to shoot as well. So not going into gun politics at all, but they're in an environment that I was raised in. I shot on the farm as, as a, a kid as well. So with, a, you know, your SEAL background, your leadership background, how have you introduced um, guns and, and hunting to the children? So I, with my oldest boy, Chase, who's, who's in the, uh, he's in the army right now. But what, what I did was when, when he was started showing as, and he was like five, a big interest in firearms, which, which I had in the house and around because I made my living with the firearm. Uh, the first thing I had him do was shoot a larger caliber gun and, and people get upset about this and, and, they just need to take a step back, but I had him shoot a 45 and I was holding it with him when he shot it and it jumped in his hand. The recoil startled him and uh, it built a little respect into him. So, and I think it's really important when you're talking about something that can take a life that they respect it. And so for Thor, who's really interested in, in, in guns with him. It was a, it was a 20 gauge shotgun and it was enough recoil that it gave him a good thump in his shoulder, maybe made him tear up a little bit, not much, but it made him respect that. And then the other thing we did was, you know, take the mystery out of it. Anytime they want to look at the, the weapons or get it out, I always go over, you know, the, the safe handling procedures for the firearms and all the nomenclature on the firearm where the trigger is and, and things like that. And then we'll spend some time uh, shooting together. And, you know, the, the weapons are all locked up in safes. They don't have a access to them without us to be there with them shooting. But that's basically how we've done it, you know, laid things out. The reason with uh, shooting the larger caliber to start with is a lot of people will get their kid a 22 or a BB gun even and just sort of turn them loose to target practice. And it's, you know, it teaches the kid that guns are essentially toys. Even though a 22 can be completely lethal, it doesn't, kick it doesn't sound very loud it's really easy to shoot and so when they get in the habit of just target practicing with a 22 it's like oh this is no biggie i can just grab a gun and go shoot and there's no there's nothing there to to instill that level of respect and that's why shooting the larger caliber gun early on they may put the gun they may, you know, you may let them shoot it and they may step back and not want to touch a gun again for a while. And I think some dads particularly who are really excited about getting their kids shooting have a hard time with that. They're like, oh, I don't want to scare my kid and have them not touch a gun. But they will want to do it again. If they don't want to shoot for a couple months, that's fine. They'll want to do it again. And when they're ready, then give them a big gun again. And they're like, oh, shoot, this thing still hurts. You know, I'm not going to go pick one up at my friend's house if I'm over there and it's laying around. And eventually, after a few rounds of that, they have a lot of respect for the for a weapon that could be lethal. 
um, if they were careless with it. And the other thing is, is that we we have a we have a pretty constant dialogue with our kids about firearms, and then we'll also we'll run drills where we're testing them. And what that looks like is maybe I've got a, 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 a rifle out that I'm cleaning and I'll leave it out. I'll go somewhere where I can watch the rifle and I know that my son is going to come by and I can see him and, but he can't see me. And then I can see what is he going to do? Is he going to do what I told him? And that's when he sees a firearm outside, come find an adult. Or is he going to pick the thing up and start playing with it? And then that that gives you an opportunity for a teaching moment. Either way, things go. But uh, you you really you have to to run those drills and and have that open dialogue. It, it has to be constant. Beautiful. I think it's, that's fantastic, and it's interesting because when I when I started shooting. Um, my dad didn't take me shooting. There was a, a ghillie, like a, a guy that, that not on our, our farm, but on, on like the estates, he would be the one that would oversee the game and that kind of thing. And, uh, he was a kind of family friend and he taught me how to shoot. And it was just a little 410 shotgun, but we didn't ever hunt anything that we would eat. So there was a disconnection where I actually stopped because I, I shot a starling, which you can't eat. And it ended up, it, it, like, uh, morally just tore me apart I, you know yes i i shot the thing that i was aiming at but it was i just took a life for no reason whatsoever and it really kind of sc- scarred me for a while when it came to the hunting element um how do you you know what's your your philosophy as far as teaching the kids knowing that you guys are both very kind of connected to nature and the land um that justification of taking a life and and you know obviously there's there's meals at the end of it but how do you kind of navigate that course with them seeing that they seem to be pretty you know compassionate kind kids it's something that they've just been involved with since they were super young so you know we raised meat chickens for a while and and when it was time to butcher the meat chickens and pluck them and and process them they were involved with that and uh you know when i can bring them along hunting with me they, they come along and then they're always along when we process the animal and that's, uh, you know, skinning it, butchering it out, helping wrap it and put it in the freezer. And then the, the two of them just love, they love venison. And so I think when you're kind of raised around it, it's not the, uh, well, as big a shock. I've as- also spent a lot of time talking to them about why it is that we do that. You know, why, why do we kill, go kill an animal to eat as opposed to buying it off the grocery store shelf? And, you know, you can buy it off the grocery store shelf and be removed from all that ugliness from the process of it. But realistically, the animal has had a much more horrific life um, being raised and slaughtered in a factory farm than it has out in the wild. And so having those conversations with the kids about, hey, here's a deer that has lived its whole life completely free, eating healthy grass, what it's supposed to live. It's had a wonderful life. And we can dispatch it with one shot, which is instantaneous and there's no suffering. And then we have to then do all the hard work to bring it home and gut it and skin it and hang it and butcher it and wrap it. 
And then eventually that meat is on, on our plate. It's this amazing process where you get to actually have connection to your food. And, you know, I talk about that with them so that all of a sudden it's not just food. It's something that you are invested in. And guess what? It's going to lead them to care about conservation because they're going to want to have a healthy deer population so that they can continue to hunt for their food as they get older. And to have a healthy deer population or elk or whatever it is that you're hunting, you need to care about the land that they live on. And, you know, it's this it's this whole chain and having those conversations about the kids and the circle of life and how everything plays into us having healthy lives and healthy planet um, because we care. Those are those are the things that the kids get to see from hunting versus just going to the store and grabbing a pack of meat off the shelf. Yeah, and I couldn't agree. Like, that's where I am mentally now, have been for a long time. But it's interesting the way you talked about that as, as being around the preparation of the meat too. And I just had a kind of memory hit me, which may explain why I struggle with it. So we had, for example, pigs. So that was usually the only thing in the occasional cow, but it would go off to an abattoir. Still, you know, we raised it on our farm, but it would go to be, you know, killed and, and, and prepared and it would come back in lots of bags. Um, but I think the other thing that was so unique for my upbringing is my dad was a vet, a veterinarian. So all the animals we were fixing, we weren't killing. So that's probably why I was so torn, you know, as a, as a younger child was, you know, there wasn't that connection with hunting and eating because I didn't have that journey with my dad. But every other animal that I touched, we were trying to save his life. Yeah. Yeah. And some kids are naturally just more empathetic than others. And, and all that they can focus on is the animal being killed. Um, so the more you can, you can talk them through why it's, you know, if, if, unless you're going to completely quit eating meat, then an animal is going to get killed, but then you can go down a whole nother rabbit hole of, you know, what not eating meat, how, you know, how that is maybe not the most beneficial thing for our planet either. So it's all about conversations and just talking to the kids as they're experiencing these things. Absolutely. Well, the other side of food then, you know, what, what are you growing now where you are? You know, what are you able to do your, on your own? And then what are you finding foraging? Just literally walking around the wilderness that you live amongst. So we have a small garden now, which is kind of a nice break after having huge gardens for a long time and farming year round. Um, you know, so just a small garden for us, which we're able to grow all the normal stuff, tomatoes and potatoes and corn. And, you know, we have a big raspberry patch and, and all of that. But I really find a great amount of satisfaction in foraging and we live in an area where there's a lot of abundance that grows out in the mountains. If you go look for it in the spring, we hunt for mushrooms. There's all kinds of berries um, on the trees and bushes. We harvest chaga from the birch trees to make tea stinging and nettle. stinging nettle for soups. Um, there's the service berries. There's huckleberries here that we pick in the summer. And almost all season long, really, all summer long, from spring through fall, we can be foraging quite an abundance of food. And it's a great excuse to get out and go for a hike and 
go find things. It's like kind of like a natural treasure hunt. You yeah. know, you're out there, especially with mushrooms. Yeah. We get out there in the forest and, and hunt mushrooms and it's so much fun. And then, you know, a lot of it's really almost more about searching for them than even finding them. You're just like having a great time. And if you find some, then it's, you know, the icing on top of the cake. But so that paired with the hunting that we do, um, we're able to eat quite a variety of really some of the best food that you can get. Are there any foods that you found through foraging um, that you noticed nutritionally were incredibly beneficial that you probably wouldn't find in a local supermarket? Yeah, stinging nettle. Yeah, stinging nettle is one of the best it's really, really good. Uh, in it's super. It, you don't have to heat it up that much to take the sting out of it, and it's loaded with a bunch of micronutrients that you need. And people have had a lot of success with it fighting allergies if they take it as in teas and stuff. That's right. Um, yeah. There's a lot of people who struggle with allergies who find a lot of relief when they drink stinging nettle tea. And we dry tons of it. And then in the winter months, instead of buying greens from the grocery store, we can just throw dried stinging nettle into soup and it rehydrates into a nice green in the soup. And, and the stuff grows like a weed. And it would, you know, we had a ton of it down in San Diego and there, there's a bunch of it up here and it grows in the spring. And then another big one for us are elderberries. There's a lot of elderberries that grow around here, and elderberries are kind of a popular, uh, um, you know, cure, folk remedy, folk yeah. remedy cure for cold and flu stuff. And elderberry syrup is actually pretty a pretty popular thing for people to buy in the winter. You see elderberry cough, cough lozenges and things like that. But realistically, most of that stuff you're going to buy off the shelf is full of sugar. They, you know, because the elderberry itself is a very tart berry and it takes a lot of sweetener to make it palatable. And if you're giving it to kids, you need it to be extra sweet. So you buy elderberry syrup off the shelf and a lot of times it's, you know, elderberries and high fructose corn syrup or something. And you're not actually doing yourself any good by taking it. So for us to be able to go out and forage the fresh elderberries and then use local honey and make um, make syrup and stuff out of that is really fantastic, and we do that a lot. Yeah, well, that seems to be a you know a recurring theme now, or or a progressive theme in in what I'm doing is the more time goes on, the more plant medicine, you know, the 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 effectiveness, the efficacy of plant medicine seems to to show again. This is something that we've obviously used for thousands of years that was just suppressed, I think, with a lot of the, again, industrialization of, of pharmaceuticals. But whether it's CBD, which I know understanding that is a recent thing, but obviously people have understood that, you know, the hemp plant, marijuana plant have been medicinal in many, many cultures for a long time. But also some of the tinctures and oils from, you know, natural plants that were poo-pooed, you know, were laughed at. You were a hippie if you talked about that. And now it's beautiful to see this full circle finally start to come around where people are returning to these remedies because they were an old remedy for a reason. They've been passed down from generation to generation. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. There's. Uh, it's great to hear all the, the conversations about just, you know, it's funny. I When I started really paying attention to our diet and sort of digging 
looking into a lot of this stuff, I, I was like, geez, this is all the stuff that our grandparents or great grandparents were eating, you know, like all of a sudden they're saying, oh, you need to make sure you eat liver and you need to eat the whole animal and you need, you know, all this stuff that we'd gotten away from. And um, I have an old Pennsylvania Dutch cookbook that was from my great grandma. And it's like, if you look at that, it's really easy to go, well, this is how we should probably be eating right here. (laughs) (laughs) And that sort of reawakening of all the, um, what we've lost in the marketing of trying them trying to sell us, you know, the, the perfect chicken breast and the, you know, the few vegetables that you see in the grocery store. There's such a there's such a wide array of fruits and vegetables and interesting things to eat. And then you go to the grocery store and you only ever see like three types of apples and, you know, the broccoli that looks exactly the same when there's all kinds of cool heirloom varieties of broccolis and cauliflowers and stuff that probably have a lot more nutrition in them. And they actually look, you know, they're pretty and interesting, but they don't ever make the cut to the grocery store shelf. Because they're not shippable. Well, it's not that they're not shippable. It's just that people expect uh, when they go to see broccoli, they want it to look a certain way. You know, yeah. they're not going to buy something that looks a little bit different. Yeah. So we've just fallen into that trap of just thinking that that's all there is out there for us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. And you look at the the history even of these vegetables, you know, when, when you start talking about, you know, paleo and some of these these uh, trendy names, even though I think the philosophy behind a lot of them are, are, are good, you know, with, oh, this is how our ancestors eat. It's like, no, no, the, like you said, the broccoli that we have now doesn't look anything like the broccoli of, you know, a thousand yeah. years ago. Yeah. Yeah, and the apples, you see apples that are like, the size of a soft softball, you know, and really, if you go pick an apple off one of the old wild apple orchards that grow around here, they're, they're much smaller. And, um, you know, we've really just warped our food to, to please the eye, but not necessarily anything else. Absolutely. And then again, you talk about shipping it. I mean, the crazy thing is we have, you know, imported citrus in a state that grows citrus. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> Absolutely insane. Well, yeah, um, that, that's a big one. Having having food shipped all over the world that doesn't. Um, did, we were just Jason and I were just talking about the thing we were reading about them using monkeys as like slaves to pick coconuts. I don't know if you've seen that Costco and some of the other big places have been dropping a bunch of coconut um, products, companies that sell coconut products because there's stuff coming out about how they're basically enslaving monkeys to pick the coconuts. And, you know, which is just kind of funny thing. But I was one other thing with this food stuff is how there's a there's a big price for the fad diets as well. You know, where all of a sudden everyone has to have their coconut oil. Um, you know, there's there what how are they getting all of that? They're gonna be cutting down rainforest to plant coconut plantations and then figuring out how to, you know, produce that much. The same thing with a quinoa. Everybody had to have quinoa and then, you know, there's there's prices to all of that, the big fad diets. And that's where it's really important also to look at what you're eating and be like, well, am I only eating this because it's a fad diet? Is there something else that I can get locally and more sustainably that is equally as good? Um, Just one other little thing on that. 
yeah. the thought of that stuff. No, absolutely. A lot of people listening, and I've heard people say this about um, Joe Rogan talking about his hunting, and they're like, well, you know, it's uh, it's a kind of very elitist thing. And in some respects, they're right. Like, if for someone living in, you know, a, a suburban or urban setting, and, you know, it does take a lot of money to go to another state and, you know, go to a, a ranch and hunt and then have that process and have it shipped back, you know. So I understand that completely. The alternative, obviously, is that we all spread back out into this amazing, you know, country that we have, all this this wilderness, and start inhabiting, you know, more local uh, rural areas again rather than just condensing into cities. Um, and I think when we spoke the other day, Jason, you made an interesting point about the uh, the size of the house. People said, well, you know, it's all right for you. You've, you've moved in this farm. And like, yeah, but I had to, there, there was, uh, you know, a, a, a sacrifice in a way where I didn't move to a mansion on, on a rural farm. I, I had to, to start where I could afford and, and make it work and then grow from there. And my, my mother did the same when she moved to Portugal. So when people say, Oh, you know, it's easy for you. I'll never be able to do it. What words of, uh, advice, encouragement, whatever, could you give someone who's on the fence, maybe living in a, in a suburban or urban setting that's yearning to move back out to the countryside? Yeah. I mean, we, we decided this is how we wanted to live a long time ago. And, and so we've been working toward it, saving money and, and making sacrifices in that, you know, we, we both drive older vehicles um we live there's four of us in in a tiny what would you, you say our cabin it's is like eight or nine hundred square eight feet eight or nine hundred square feet with one bathroom and you know we're going to build another house when we can pay for it but right now this this is how we are and it and, it and honestly it works just fine yeah and so when you see you know the sort of middle class average lifestyle of having a house that's got a bedroom for each kid and is really pretty oversized and you know takes all of your money to pay for um having a little cabin out in the woods with some acreage that is cozy um it's completely worth it to us we would rather have that than and have that lifestyle than live closer to town now some of the sacrifices are are yeah, our kids go to a small school. It's a it's a good school. I love that they go to a small school because their classes are really small and during COVID they're able to actually stay open now and stuff. But there's not very many sports activities. There's not very many, you know, if our daughter wants to do gymnastics, there isn't that as an option. If our son wants, you know, there's there's limited opportunities for that kind of stuff. But here's the, the flip side to that. Because of where we live, we, we have horses, we have dogs, we have woods to go out in. We do things, um, you know, we don't have to spend every weekend at various little league games and things like that. We spend it out fishing and hiking and riding horses together as a family and doing that stuff. So, you know, you could look at that as a sacrifice. Oh, it's a sacrifice that I can't, I have I live out here and I can't put my kid in gymnastics, but you can also look at it as a benefit that now I actually have this opportunity to spend all this extra time one-on-one -on -one with my kid and I can teach them things. And instead of, you know, sitting at a little league game, I can 
teach my kid how to build a fire and ride a horse and shoot a gun and clean an animal and all of that stuff. So I don't know if, I don't know. It's a sacrifice for some people if that's how they look at it. Yeah. I mean, really it, it, it comes down to that's what works, works for us. And for other people, little league game and, and living in town is yeah, it's maybe your that's their priorities. thing. But it's it's you know it's third law of combat, prioritize and execute. Where you sit back and you you should sit down and say, okay, is this really a priority priority for me? And we laid out our priorities, and a big house wasn't up there. Um, new vehicles weren't up there, and stacked it all out, and it's working fine. We're really happy. It reminds me of um, when I was younger, I traveled the world. And so to do so, I basically had to get all my possessions and put them in a backpack and I had a guitar and that was it. Um, the guitar was fun. I'm a terrible singer. I'm a terrible player. I didn't, didn't really add to the trip apart from my own, my own personal journey. Um, but it was amazing. You know, the, you had a, a sweatshirt, you know, a, a couple of pairs of board shorts and, you know, underwear and some other things, you know, two pairs of jeans. And it lasted for a year, literally. So it really recalibrated what do I need, using the word need as opposed to want. Um, what were some of the the things that you found downsizing yet again to where you are now, material items-wise, where you realized that you'd been hanging on to certain things that you just didn't want or need anymore now you were in, in the environment that you're in now? Man, there was a lot of clothes that we got rid of. Yeah, I seriously, I've switched over to wearing almost all wool clothes and I have completely minimalized my wardrobe into just wearing, you know, I just have a handful of shirts and I'm, they don't have logos or anything on them. They all just look the same and it makes it really simple. It's small. They're good quality shirts that last for a long time and you don't have a hard decision to make every morning. What am I going to wear? And I actually love that. The things that you can minimalize like that, I think it's it's really cool. Um, other stuff, I think, you know, we, I like the idea of minimalizing, but we also have to have like a functioning, because when you live out in the country, you need a lot of stuff to be able to be prepared for things that you need, right? So you can't just go, oh, I don't need anything because I can just go to the store and get it if I need it. So we do have a shop and we have a, you know, a really good, we're well stocked with tools and equipment and right. things like that, that we need to fix things and get things done. Um, but just trying to be conscientious about the things that you buy, I think it's really easy to just get, do impulse buying and like, oh, I want this or I want that. And instead slowing down and really thinking about, do I need this? And if I do need it, can I find it locally? Can I find it at the the used old antique store or whatever is around? Can I get somebody local to make it? Um, and then that stuff is all has a lot more value and is more special than if you just order it off of Amazon. So just being more intentional with the things that we do collect, um, that's something that I think we're always working on. Yeah, because there's nothing like, uh, you know, a defined perimeter around your possessions that really highlights what's needed the most. I mean, I've lived in a tiny, tiny apartment in Japan when I lived out there, and it was amazing. I mean, the, the, the engineering and the architecture of these flats were incredible. But 
you know, everything that you added to it made it feel less and less spacious. So you really kind of yeah. made you look at, like you said, adding how much value is it? You can almost have to marry Kono a little bit and say, thank you, but I don't need you anymore because <laughs> you're just sitting yeah. there doing absolutely nothing. So I can totally you get understand. More value from the item, the possession, or do you get more value from the space that it leaves behind? And oftentimes for me, it's more value from not having it. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think that's, that's again, a barrier to entry to, you know, people moving towards the lifestyle that you guys have forged for yourselves. You know, there's the, the norm of, of what an average household, you know, seems to be or house seems to be just seems to creep up and up and up. When I first moved to, to the US was before the few years before the 2008 crash. So when I moved to California, my felt, man, my friends had, 4,000 square foot homes and a Winnebago and all this stuff. And I remember coming from a different lens again, coming from the UK going, this is crazy. How are you managing to afford this? And where are you even putting all this shit? Um, and then obviously it came crashing down, sadly. And a lot of those people lost everything that I just mentioned, but it, you know, it really is, you know, the superfluous, superfluous stuff. Like you can literally, like you said, go and rent a ski boat for a day if you want to go ski. And then give it back to the person and say, thank you so much. And I'm, I'm going back to my house now. But this yeah. hoarding of possessions, I think, is is something that's really boxed people into feeling chained to their where they live and also their job as well. Definitely. And I'm with you, James. I backpack as well. And I think there's nothing like that feeling of having everything that you actually need in a pack on your back. And that's such a it's such an incredible feeling of freedom and you find that you're happier with just that little bit um and the experiences that you get than all the possessions that kind of tie you down absolutely well another thing that i see you do you know very holistically is writing i see that you know it's becoming more and more central to your family dynamic now um what has been your experience? Iris, I know you've written for a long time, but especially Jason with you, I hear a lot of people really get so much out of, you know, interaction with horses, whether it's someone like Buck talking, you know, his life story or a lot of the veterans and military, oh, excuse me, in the first responder community that have been interacting with horses through equine therapy programs. So have you, have you found yet another level of, of, uh, um, I hate using the word mental health, but just, just inner happiness, having more horses and be able to ride more in your life now. Yeah, absolutely. The partnership that you, you have to forge with the horse is, is really special because you just can't come in there and, and force them to do everything. Or if you do, you you really haven't built the partnership and it's not good horsemanship. And, and uh, it, it's an opportunity to just kind of turn all the, the background noise off, for me anyway. Um, and then it, it's super challenging because that horse is a mirror. If the horse is doing something wrong, he's not doing something wrong. And Iris has to remind me this all the time. It's like, I'm like, why is he doing this? And she's like, it's, it's something that you're doing. And so it forces me to look internally and then get a handle on on, okay, well, yeah, I'm not giving him the correct cues that he needs or, uh, you know, Hey, I need, I need to take a deep breath because I'm frustrated and that horse is picking up on every, 
he can tell that my pulse is elevated and then my jaw is clenched and, and, and is reacting to that. And I'm just, and then they can also, they'll respond right away when you relax and it's, it's really a neat experience. And then the access to go into the wilderness on a horse's back is, is, is another thing that we're, I'm really grateful that we have that opportunity. We can ride right out the gate and, and be in the wilderness with them. And Iris, with you growing up on horseback, what is your experience watching the kids uh, doing the same thing now? Oh, it's so cool. I'm so excited to have them out doing it. Um, our daughter, Storm, is just completely, she would spend all day, every day on the back of a horse if I let her. And uh, it's such an amazing way for her and I to bond. You know, I I ride all the time and I'm out working horses and now she has her own horse that she can ride. And so to just have her out there tailing along behind me learning is I think a, just a fantastic way to bond and keep a, a really strong connection with her. And it's amazing to watch her, you know, again, we talked about like giving kids freedom and responsibility. Uh, you stick a kid on a 1200 pound horse and turn him loose in the woods and that's uh, something that's going to really build some confidence in them to feel like they can handle that animal. And she's also, you know, I also try to make sure that she is good with her horsemanship, that she's not just riding the horse and doing whatever she wants, but she's actually understanding the best way to handle a horse and how to communicate with a horse. And she's going to have a big leg up in the world with the horsemanship where I got a horse and didn't really have you know, have anyone to teach me very well. So I kind of just bumbled through it for a long time. Um, it's, it really is cool to be able to give her a lot of that information and see her grow and develop through horsemanship. Beautiful. Yeah, it's funny. I had an vision of myself when I was young. I, I looked like one of those monkeys is strapped to a greyhound, just hanging on for dear life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's kind of Thor. He gets on there and just, you know, he's a little bit less interested right now in the horsemanship aspect, but he still likes to get out and ride. And so um, taking them both out there is a lot of fun. Beautiful. Well, with, with Storm, I know we talked about this before, um, the journey of raising a strong woman and obviously this is so important this is how we change the world as we raise kind com compassionate you know men and women but you know we, we've we've grown up you know our generation was this is what a man does this is what a woman does you know and it's still kind of victorian in in thinking and we're seeing it slowly grow i think crossfit's done a great way of of reprogramming that but how is that journey i mean you, you're you're raising a young woman out in the you know in the in the wilderness as it were um you know, what are you seeing as far as the evolution of her identity? Well, we raise them both to be the same. We don't differentiate, oh, this is something that the boy does and this is something that the girl does. They're both expected to be able to do the same stuff. And that is, um, you know, that's a, that's a big one where I feel like it's been a detriment to women for so long where they're treated as, the weaker sex where, oh, you know, you should be over here knitting while the boys are out hunting or whatever. It's, it's so wrong in that maybe that's what the girl, maybe the girl has no interest in hunting, but if she does, then she should be doing it. Or if she does have interest in riding horses, then she should be doing it. Or if she does have interest in, you know, the same with, a, if, if a boy wants to, to do something that is traditionally seen as a more 
feminine role. It's the possibility shouldn't be limited by your Your sex. And so we really try to make sure that that is not an issue with our kids and they both feel like they're capable of doing what they want to do. Beautiful. Well, Jason, obviously with the Echelon front background, I want to talk about, you know, what you guys are doing now and, you know, what 2021 is projected to look like. But again, apolitically, just as a member of this country and seeing what we're seeing, you know, nationally, statewide, local government, whatever it is, what are you seeing as far as leadership and what would you like to see as far as, you know, areas that should be done better? Wow. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I think that um, this, this is going to highlight a lot of problems with our system and we'll, now that we see these problems, we can work hard to fix them. And that, that's one of the things moving forward. I, I, uh, I think that's all, all I really want. I'm really hesitant to get political. I don't think there were a lot of great choices this year, and I don't think anyone can make that argument. And it's because the system is maybe it's a little bit flawed and it needs to be fixed. And now we need to look at ways to fix it. And we need to look at maybe some people with some different ideas and, and maybe some younger people to get in charge of things. I really struggle with the concept of politicians being leaders anyway. They, they are, but they're also kind of bureaucrats. And that's more management, not leadership. So it, it's, it's tricky. I, I haven't been um, paying a whole lot of attention to the news because I find that I'm happier in the most part. And uh, it really doesn't matter to me. Uh, when I really boil down to how it affects me or my community, you know, they say all politics is local. And so uh, community wide, I, I think uh, we're, we're definitely moving in, in a good direction in, in our community and, uh, and nationwide, these, these hurdles that we're going through, they're just going to make us stronger. Beautiful. No, I love that. And I think I, I agree a hundred percent. I think we see division or being shown division but I think that this should be the complete opposite. We should be united in the fact that, you know, you can argue however many elections now do not seem to, to present with us great choices for someone who's going to represent our nation. So it's not about left, right, you know, black, white, gay, straight, whatever. It's about 330 million people. Can we have a system that really creates some great leaders to the point where if person A wins, you're still happy, even if you're a person B or person C supporter, you know, but this, this, this is purely my own opinion now, you know, I know of so many people, you work with so many people who would be incredible in that position. So my observation as an immigrant who just became eligible to vote presidentially this year, um, and I actually voted libertarian because I couldn't bring myself to vote for either the other two. Um, and I, you know, and I align much more with, with that particular philosophy anyway. It wasn't, it wasn't a default, but you know, I think that we all agree that there is room for improvement in this system that creates a true democracy where we bring the best of the best to the top that we are proud to represent our country. And, and unfortunately, right now with the two party system is, once you join one party or the other one, everyone's going to shut off your ideas. 
So like the, the concept of people having like, oh, well, what if Jocko ran for president? That would be a horrible idea. And the reason for that is as soon as he aligned himself with one party, the other people, everybody else would stop listening to the great stuff that he is saying. And I think that, you know, the concepts of extreme ownership that Jocko and Leif wrote about in the book and Jocko is talking about in the podcast, all those concepts just getting out there and everyone hearing them regardless of their political party. And, and I know people from every end of the spectrum that listen that has a greater influence for the overall good for humanity, not just our nation, because everybody listens to it, than would have him joining a, a political party. And, you know, a lot of people don't try out for that job because it's, it's probably a horrible job. And why would you want it? And, and that's the tricky thing is is the system is, is as soon as people are elected, then they got to start raising money to get reelected and all that. And it's just like, it's, it's not something that's going to attract the kind of people that we want in charge. And, and some, some good people power through that bad stuff, but it's, it's difficult to, to figure out who that is really. And, you know, I, I don't know. I, it, it, we're moving in the right direction and there's there's hiccups but if, if you look at where this country was compared to where we were in the 70s or the 80s or the 50s we're much better and and I think we'll we'll keep moving in a in a positive direction and and but it's not a straight line we'll we'll slide backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards and and but the the overall trajectory of where we're going is 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 a positive direction. Growth is uncomfortable, right? Yeah, yeah, and I agree with, completely with this direct communication that we're seeing now. Obviously, you know, uh, Jocker wrote a book, but the podcasts and you know things that the people at Joe Rogan and Tim Ferriss and some of these other podcasters that I listen to have brought to the forefront. You know, many of the topics that I talk about now is because I listened to them from other you know podcasts and brought them onto mine. So. I think uh, yeah, this whole medium is, is a great way of disseminating information without any filters, without any, any um, uh, you know, restriction of, of true free speech. And, you know, I agree that that actual position, I think when we create a different environment, will produce a great figurehead, a representation for our, our country. But, you know, I think that, you know, change begins at the community level, whether that's, like you said, mustering a group of people through a podcast, or whether it's a local leader riling up people to, to you know, do charitable things in their community, um, like you were doing, banding people together for, you know, a, a communal event with Halloween. That is how we change the country. And then parenting too, what you guys are doing with your kids. And, you know, that's how we break the cycle of, of some of the, the bad things that we see in the world is that we take responsibility of our own families. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, the only people that we can truly affect is ourselves. So if we're going to make the world a better place, we're going to start with ourselves. And, um, and that, that's what we've been really trying to do to be better people to be better better neighbors to be better parents lead by example and and then that that's one thing that we really strive to do on on our social media is that we try to keep it positive and it's just like hey here's here's what we're living and here's what's important to us and we stay away from try to stay away from complaining about stuff or or 
just getting sucked into some of this negative energy that's just cycling around right now. People like it. And so that's that's good stuff. I, I think it's a good positive thing. And there you go. Absolutely. Well, speaking of positive things, so um, what are you looking forward to in 2021 as far as Echelon Front? What are some of the, the changes or, or events that you've got kind of planned that people can look forward to in the new year? So Echelon Front has done a huge pivot because of COVID. They're like, hey, wait a minute. We need to get to be more available for folks uh, uh, via the internet, via Zoom meetings. So we're doing a lot more of virtual events, which is great because the, you know I, I can do a virtual event and I don't lose two days traveling. And it, it saves a lot of time and I can do three or four. They don't, they don't pay the same, same amount. And they're, they're a little bit different than an in-person event is, but they're just almost just as good. And, and Echelon Front is, we've started EF Online, which is our online uh, kind of classes where Jocko and Leif right now are just really burning the midnight oil to make a bunch of foundational courses in there that people can go on and do. And then they have all these virtual events where people can actually ask Jocko questions directly and he'll answer them or any of the echelon front uh, staff questions. And so now we're available to people who wouldn't have been able to afford us before because it's expensive to have us fly out somewhere and do an event. But it, it it's, it's a real reasonable plot price for people to get on EF online to get a subscription to us and then have access to all those foundational courses and, and they'll have access to, to asking questions to the EF staff directly um, several times a week. So that's, that's really neat. And I think a lot of, a lot of businesses are rethinking why they have office space. And some of them have said, you know what, we don't need office space. We're going to let everybody work from home via zoom meetings. Um, and, and, and we're no different, you know, it's like uh, innovate and adapt and, that's where we're going in 2021, and it looks looks like it's 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 going to be a, a real powerful thing. Yeah, no, it's, it's something I've done for years. I mean, as you know, we we did all our interviews. We haven't actually met face to face yet, so they've all been yeah. in this medium. But um, you know, I think that that's such a beautiful thing that has come out of this. But now I think the the kind of territory that people have got to navigate is where's that happy medium. You know, you you have to combine that online with that, as you mentioned earlier, the human interaction piece as well. So I can see that, you know, companies moving from having to, to go through rush hour just to sit at a desk to do exactly what you could do from your home, but with having a communal space where maybe you cycle through once a week and you actually meet with your team and that way you get the best of both worlds. Yes, absolutely. Brilliant. And then what about you guys just as, as a family? What are you looking forward to 2021? Are you writing any books? Are you doing anything outside of the Echelon Front and uh, homestead life? Um, I'm working on a book right now that hopefully I'll get done here in not too long. And um, I've been doing the some YouTube videos. I started a YouTube channel and have been having a lot of fun kind of videoing our um, foraging and horse riding and sort of lifestyle adventures up here. And I think we're going to do some more of that, maybe do some videos with Jason's stuff here in not too long. And, um, yeah. Yeah. So that's, I mean, 
it, for those of you who are listening to this and, and you're curious about, you know, the foraging and everything, you've got to go check out. What is your YouTube channel? It's just my name, Iris Gardner. Iris Gardner. And she's got six or seven videos on now that are great. They're like 10 minutes long and it just kind of shows how we're living out, out here. And we're hoping to do more of that. Um, and that's just, just what we're looking, looking at for the future. It's looking, uh, looking really yeah, good. Yeah. Other than that, lots of horse riding and training and foraging and ha- ha- enjoying our life out here away from all the craziness. Yeah. Beautiful. Wrapping up a chicken coop right now. <laughs> Got it. Getting ready for yeah. the winter. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. All right. Well, I want to transition to some closing questions to see if there's anything new in the last year. Um, the first one, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be something we've discussed today or something completely different. Yeah, I uh, um, I get a lot out of stoicism and the daily stoic, which basically breaks down a bunch of the writings that the stoics uh, did and then pushes it out into a way that you can understand it in current terms. Uh, I find super helpful. And so that that's a book that I've gifted uh, a whole bunch and I get a lot out of it. Beautiful. And Iris? Oh, gosh. I don't even know where to start with books. I love books, so my book list is way too long. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm just trying to think of something that I've read recently that was impactful. And uh, I think... uh, Oh, what was the one with... um, now I'm going to completely draw a blank on her name. Um, Glennon, Glennon something. Well, I I'm missing thought, it. No, uh, I'm going to just Roosevelt's flub this wife one. Roosevelt's wrote those ones that you really Oh, liked. shoot. Yeah, I started digging into some of um, Eleanor Roosevelt's books. She's written some, actually, she wrote quite a few books and uh, has some really fantastic stuff in there. And I can't think of the name of any of them right now because I have like four of them sitting sort of half read because I'm going through them all together uh, on by my bed. But they're really good books and have some really awesome stuff about um, just living life in a in a positive and inspiring manner, I think. So I would definitely recommend checking out any of Eleanor Roosevelt's books. Brilliant. Yeah, she was pretty uh, humanitarian too, wasn't she, if I remember rightly? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Definitely an interesting woman for her time. Absolutely. All right, well then, same question, uh, movie and or documentary, if you've even watched TV much recently. Oh. I mean, for straight up fun, The Mandalorian, and we were fired up that the new season's coming out, but we're going to wait for them to get all the episodes before we binge watch watch it. (laughs) binge watch it yeah we haven't in the summers we don't watch much tv at all we're outside from morning till night so we're just getting into the longer day the longer nights where we're starting to spend more time doing stuff like that but right now we're reading the lord of the rings i'm reading it out loud to the kids and that's taking up all of our time in the evenings so we're still not watching very much tv no 
Brilliant. Now, are you going to watch the the movies as well? Because I have to say, I think that series was done incredibly well. It was a fantastic, they did a fantastic job with them. And yeah, so I'm not, I haven't, I've kept the kids from watching any of that until after I read the books to them. Because I, you know, I grew up with Lord of the Rings. I'm a huge fan and Jason as well. So um, we're reading them now once we're finished with all three books then we'll watch all three movies so yeah they did such a great job with that and we read the hobbit um last spring and then we we did let them watch the hobbit movie after we read that so that was a lot of fun for them and they're completely engrossed and it's a great great family time to just sit and read out loud every night that's something that i really um i love doing with them well i can imagine as well living living in the forest they can probably kind of feel it organically a little bit more and visual, yeah. visualize the world. They definitely can. Thor is always walking around with an axe in his hand <laughs> and, or something, some sort of weapon. And I swear he has a fantastic imagination and he just basically places himself right in that story as he's out carrying about his days. Yeah. So. <laughs> Beautiful. I can relate. I thought I was Robin Hood on my farm. So there we go. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, the next question, is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Yeah, I I need to get a hold of her. When we lived in Southern California, there was a fire captain. Oh, yeah. Right next door to us. That's really inspiring. She she has run all kinds of like triathlons is that what iron man she does the iron mans and stuff she was is the fire captain for the cal fire station that was next door to us she's an incredible person she's an incredible athlete she lost some fellow firefighters during one of the big big you know horrible fires that we had in in san diego and and uh that's a heavy burden that she carries and yeah, I'm definitely going to get her info and get and her in touch with you, James. Send it to you, for sure. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, sounds like another powerful story. It needs to be heard. So the last question before we underline where people can find you, what do you do to decompress? It sounds like a lot, but let's, uh, are there any kind of new things that you've came, come across the last year or so? Iris has started playing the guitar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to brag about it because I can't. <laughs> anything yet but i was just telling jason when we were when we were uh, in the car today i was saying that it's kind of meditative you know to just sit there and practice the chords and stuff you can't really think about anything else so i like that beautiful and jason it's for me it's out working with my horse the two of us learning stuff together is is just uh, a fantastic experience Brilliant. So basically, playing the guitar on horseback is the ultimate decompression is what I'm getting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll get to that point eventually. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So then the, the last question then. So if we underline again, the YouTube channel, um, Echelon Front's websites and anywhere else that people can find you online. Uh, I'm on Instagram, jason.n.gardner and Iris is... My Instagram is all the wild places. And hers is way better than mine. Yeah. <laughs> if you're not and, following her now, just start following and her. And then my YouTube channel is just Iris Gardner. And those are really the – we're on Twitter too, but um, Instagram is where we do most of our social media. Beautiful. And then it's efonline.com. Is that right for Echelon Front? Yep, I believe so. Brilliant. 
All right. Well, I just want to say thank you again. Another great conversation, completely different than the last two that we've had. But um, I think learning from the experience that you've had since you moved there is a very powerful story that a lot of us need to hear because, you know, the what has happened, you know, the last few months has been very positive for some people. I mean, I've managed to churn out a book and extra podcasts and all kinds of things. Um, but obviously, it's been detrimental to some some people have lost you know family members and some people have just you know maybe lost jobs homes who you know whatever it is so understanding that there is an entirely different way of living which as you mentioned it's not even you know it's not reinventing the wheel it's just going back to to how we used to live i think it's really uh inspiring um you know to hear some city folk as it were that have moved back to uh you know to really out in the country and and the success that you've had so thank you so much for taking the time to tell the story today well thank you james James. and great job on the book like i said i'm gonna finish it up and pass it on to some friends and um it's a huge accomplishment so proud of you for doing that and then on your list of places to visit please